Hello, everyone. We're back this week with the history of prosthetics. A prosthesis broadly refers to an artificial body part, and we'll talk about two types of prosthetics eventually. Today, we'll start with prosthetic limbs, like arms, legs, and hands, and then next week we'll get around to prosthetic joints, like shoulders or hips. Since, well, probably forever, humans have suffered from disease and from accidents. In many cases, limbs or appendages were severed, or so badly damaged or infected that they needed to be amputated. Missing a part of your body is a giant pain, and so unsurprisingly, the history of prosthetics goes pretty far back. Unfortunately, it's hard to say exactly how far back. Early prosthetics would probably have been made of materials that decompose, and most folks with grievous injuries would not have survived to need a prosthetic anyway. The earliest prosthetics I found record of date to around 1000 BC, from the ancient Egyptians, including a wood and leather artificial toe designed to enable the wearing of sandals. The oldest leg prosthesis hails from Capua, Italy, from around 300 BC, and was buried with its user in a tomb. A near contender comes from China, where a tomb yielded an artificial wooden leg that actually used a horse hoof for the foot. I guess they were going for a bit of that centaur look. Technology would not advance very much beyond that for a long time. There are tales of some prominent soldiers and mercenaries having iron hands, or even just a simple hook. For legs, the technology was also pretty rudimentary, with most common solutions being just a wooden peg leg. Basically, just think of stereotypical pirates for remembering early prosthetics. As you can imagine, these don't work all that well. They're attached to the patient with leather collars and straps, and provided very little utility, although I guess they were better than nothing. In the 16th century, Ambroise Paré was a surgeon who worked as the official royal surgeon for a number of French kings. He improved amputation techniques, but also developed functional prosthetic limbs for basically the entire body. He employed armorers to make artificial limbs because they were good at making flexible joints for armor. He invented prosthetics with more adjustability, and also realized that having a piece of wood on you all day is not great, and so used lighter materials like leather and paper. Some big changes really start up in the 19th century. German dentist Peter Bailiff pioneered the concept of a body-powered upper-body limb prosthesis all the way back in 1818. Using leather straps attached to the chest and the shoulder, an arm amputee was able to operate bailiff's prosthetic hand with their other muscle movements. This may sound kind of rudimentary, but keep in mind before this, all you might get was just a hook, so anything controllable was quite an upgrade. As you know is often the case, war was a major source of innovation too. The American Civil War led to a lot of severed limbs, especially because at the time, amputation was a common solution for infected wounds. And in the age before antisepsis, we know infections were pretty common. In the United States between 1861 and 1873, over 80 patents for prosthetic legs were filed, and a number of major companies were started, targeted very specifically at veterans of the Civil War. For example, James Edward Hanger was one of the first amputees of the Civil War, and was originally an engineer. While recovering, he designed a prosthetic leg and founded Hanger Inc., which still operates making prostheses to this day. New designs that had knee and ankle joints were developed, which were both better aesthetically and functionally. 
something the able-bodied among us probably take for granted, but getting upstairs requires knee joints to do easily, and a peg leg does not have knees. As per usual with many episodes this season, World War I led to even more innovations, due especially to the brutal nature and large scale of the war, and that industrialization was in full swing. After World War I, prosthetic limbs with knees and elbows benefited from new manufacturing techniques and new materials like plastic, aluminum, and other composites, which were cheaper, stronger, and more comfortable. The latest prosthetics of the time also had interchangeable parts, so that the end of the prosthetic could operate a number of different work tools. Of the several thousand amputees in the US from World War I, a great many were able to regain some ability to work on farms or in factories. World War II also led to demand for artificial limbs, especially for veterans who still needed functional arms to work. In 1948, the Bowden Cable Body Powered Prosthesis was invented, which replaced the bulky straps once used to control prostheses with new, sturdy cables. This design persists in more simple prosthetic systems to this day, because of its portability, durability, and also its affordability. Complex systems of the past were often expensive, but the Bowden prosthesis was much more affordable while still providing a useful range of motion, speed, and force output for its users. The cable also could indicate the position of the prosthesis to an extent, as users could feel the tension in the cable. However, these systems do have some serious drawbacks. As you might imagine, wearing a bunch of high-tension cables on your chest for a long time gets pretty uncomfortable, and appearance leaves much to be desired too, with the limb usually ending in a two-pronged mechanical hook. I think the really interesting prosthetics start to arrive in the 1960s, and they seek to correct some of these problems. Technically, Reinhold Reiter, a German physics student, created the first myoelectric prosthesis back in 1948. A myoelectric prosthesis is a device that measures muscles' electrical activity through the skin, in order to provide control. As per usual with many a graduate student, his work was not widely appreciated, and it wasn't until the 1960s when Russian scientist Alexander Kobrinsky introduced his myoelectric prosthesis that the idea got some attention. By the 60s, transistors made the electronics involved smaller, and the device was much less bulky than Raider's model. It was sold in Britain and Canada, but was still heavy, slow, and had pretty bad pinch force, and the wire connections frequently broke down, which sounds both annoying and like a health hazard. To be fair though, human hands are pretty complicated, and so it's to be expected that the first try was not perfect. Given a few decades, we got better at making such myoelectric type prostheses. By the 1980s, such devices were being used around the world, and today they are a common option for amputees. New batteries and electronics technology has made them lighter than ever before. Myoelectric prostheses are more comfortable and can be made to look pretty much exactly like a limb with silicone. They are non-invasive, and they require about the same effort to use as a real limb, since muscles are used to control it. However, this technology is by no means perfect. They are battery-powered, as we mentioned, and so require recharging and have limited usage time. As far as I can remember, I've never had to plug in my arm, so that's not great. Learning to use them is also pretty tedious, since patients have to train using their other muscles to translate to new movements. For example, a patient might have to flex their bicep in order to close their new hand, which is pretty unintuitive, to say the least. There's also no sensory feedback through the device, which is something many of us take for granted. But imagine how much more difficult it would be to accomplish tasks with your hands 
if you had to do it by vision alone, and couldn't actually feel if you were grasping or holding something. Myoelectric devices are also incredibly expensive, usually in the thousands of dollars, and are not always covered by insurance. From myoelectric prostheses, a few new advances were made. In the 1990s, Swedish surgeon Rickard Reinmark began using osseointegration, or the direct attachment of titanium into living bone, for prosthetics. Titanium was chosen for its strength and biocompatibility, as well as being the material Robocop was made of. I kid, but I do have to wonder if Brainmark was a bit inspired by science fiction of the past. This titanium implant does not make the patient bulletproof, but does provide some benefits over other prostheses. Since the prosthetic is actually attached to the patient's bone, it avoids some of the problems of having a prosthetic external attachment, like chafing and sweating, while also increasing the amputee's range of motion. Direct attachment to bone also restores some tactile sense, like feelings of pressure or vibration. As you can imagine, though, osseointegration procedures are very expensive and very invasive, with risk of infection being a major deterrent. In the 2000s, specifically 2004, Dr. Todd Quicken and Dr. Gregory Dumanian first described the technique of targeted motor reinnervation. This is where things get somehow even more interesting to me. The idea is kind of similar to myoelectric prostheses, but as we mentioned, one of the problems with conventional myoelectric prostheses is that it measures electrical activity from muscles that are not the hand. Controlling a myoelectric prosthesis requires learning to flex other muscles to control the artificial hand, which requires a good bit of practice to get at. Instead, with targeted motor reinnervation, or TMR for short, nerves that were once used to control the missing limb are rerouted to spare muscles near the site of amputation. What this means is that after the operation, a patient can think about flexing their fingers like they would have before the amputation, but the nerve is now routed to a chest muscle that flexes. Similar technology to conventional myoelectric prostheses can then be used to pick up that signal, but because the patient is using the original nerves meant to control the missing limb, it is much more intuitive to use, and the speed of task performance is several times better with TMR. In addition to improved motor control, early TMR patients were found to have sensory recovery in the area that the nerve was rewired to. So for example, if a nerve once used to control fingers was rerouted to a chest muscle, and you poked the chest muscle, the patient would report that they felt pressure on their fingers, even though those fingers are no longer present. With this knowledge, teams are now working on prosthetic devices that could be controlled by reading muscular activity, but also give the patient sensory information by acting on the relevant areas of the body that correspond to part of the arm. It's possible with this technology that we may be able to essentially fully restore use of limbs with surgery and with cutting-edge technology. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, such complex surgeries and technology is even more expensive. Basic myoelectric prostheses run in the thousands of dollars. TMR's total cost is estimated at around $200,000. Yikes. That basically brings us to today, though. Computers are now smaller and cheaper than ever, and I've read of microprocessors in prosthetic legs allowing knees to adapt to different environments. 3D printing is also a new and upcoming technology that is helping to bring down the cost of prosthetics, while still allowing lots of customization. Very recently, hand transplantation has also been explored, which I suppose is a kind of prosthesis, even if it is biological. 
Given more time, experts expect that the cost of devices will continue to go down, which will hopefully allow for even more sophisticated and affordable prostheses. In the long term, some articles I read also postulate that we will eventually grow limbs for patients, specifically for transplantation, which would truly provide the best compatibility, control, sensory feedback, and of course, aesthetics. That's it for this week. As I mentioned, there's a whole other kind of prosthetics that I want to cover, which is what the next episode is for. Next week, we walk through the history of prosthetic joints. As always, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for cover art, and Muse Open for our music. If you like what you hear, let me know with the links in the show notes, and maybe, just maybe, tell a friend or two about us.